I was in a Marine Corps boot camp, I was selected to be the guide of our platoon. Uh, the guide is a particular role that comes with it, responsibility over the rest of the platoon. Um, he's the one who carries the spear at the front of the uh, formation. That's about seven feet tall. It's the oldest weapon in the United States arsenal. And it has uh, on, on the top of it affixed a flag with the unit number so that whoever's marching, whatever unit's passing by, everyone else knows who's there. Well, amongst those responsibilities, the guide is also uh, selected to represent his platoon amongst all the other guides of the other platoons in the company at the end of boot camp in a competition. Various parts of that competition, physical fitness, different types of combat skills, knowledge, etc. And one of the things specifically that the guide had to endure was a trial that was uniquely designed by the drill instructors of the platoons to see how battle-ready he was. I remember standing outside of the duty hut getting ready to go in. It's like the last week of boot camp, standing with all the other guides, position of attention, locked and ready to roll and discipline and bearing and no one's talking or anything. And My name was called. I went into the room. The drill instructors were seated around or leaning up against the wall with their arms crossed, scrutinizing everything that we say or do. And my drill instructor had come up with a particular trial in mind. He produced from behind the desk a, an M16, the service rifle that we carried at the time, and he stepped forward and he just held it out in front of me and he said, recruit Sanford, take charge of this weapon. And I froze. I, I, did, I didn't know what he wanted. I'd carried that rifle around in drill formations, and I'd carried around it for a couple of weeks at the range. We learned how to shoot it and how to operate the rifle effectively from different distances. I knew how to check to make sure there weren't any rounds in. I, I knew how to make sure it was on safe, but I didn't know what he wanted. And he, he just held it out in front of me, and my lack of familiarity with that weapon caused me just to freeze, and it, it felt like an eternity. It, it, there was no way it was less than 30 seconds of me silently standing there at the position of attention in front of him. The other drill instructors looking at each other like, what's this guy going to do? My unfamiliarity with the most fundamental tool of a Marine caused me to fail that test right then and there. I was unprepared. One of the mottos of a Marine is that every Marine is a rifleman. No matter what other task, what other job you have, you could be the cook for a particular company. You are first and foremost expected to carry a rifle into battle. I sit with pastors all the time. I get to meet with different ministry leaders in the area. I make it a particular and very intentional endeavor to meet with new pastors that move into the area, those that have been here for a long time, and I've gotten to network with and know personally many, if not most, of the gospel-preaching pastors in the county and even in this part of Utah. And I have a few questions that I like to ask. And I consider these questions kind of like holding out the rifle in front of that pastor. You see... Right now, looking back, I know exactly what that drill instructor wanted me to do. 
He wanted me to, to seize hold of that weapon and to unload, show clear, make sure it was on safe, do a brass check, remove the magazine, see how many rounds were there, take charge of the weapon. As my familiarity over the course of the next handful of years, multiple deployments, carrying a rifle into almost two dozen different countries as a Marine, going into Iraq on two different deployments where the rifle was our fundamental tool of both protection, defense, and offense, I'd become familiar with it. And I like to ask these questions to these pastors. It's just to see, I want to see what their familiarity is with the Word of God. And I believe that I can learn most of what I need to know about that pastor and the church that he serves by listening to how he deals with Scripture. How familiar he is with wielding the sword of truth. Now real quick, does that sound too harsh? Does that come into mind? Wow, Rich, that was strong language. You feel like you can know most of what you need to know about that pastor and his church by how he deals with the Bible? Isn't that too narrow of a judgment? Not remotely. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. As a pastor and a preacher, I know that my words will only be helpful to you insofar as they agree with Scripture. You should not care one bit about the opinions of a pastor in determining what is true. If you ever find yourself searching for a new church home, this needs to mean more to you than good music, an engaging children's ministry, people your age, relative proximity to home, and a host of other, perhaps important factors. If the pastors of a church compromise on this, none of the rest matters. Our text today is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I want to read these verses out loud, pray, and then go back through a verse at a time. Let's read it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are opening your word and we seek your guidance. We ask for your spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that this word would be at the very center of our life because we love you and honor you, because our commitment and our loyalty is to you more than anything or anyone else. Let us then trust in your promises. Let us heed your warnings. Let us believe your words. Father, we are grateful for this Bible. Let it adjust and fine-tune and work out the issues of every part of our life. And we ask you to do that this very morning. In Jesus' good name, amen. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
The last time I was in this text a couple weeks ago, I tried to show that this rest being talked about, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This rest is primarily referring to an eternal rest, an eschatological rest. It means a rest regarding the end, i.e. heaven. I sought to show you that from the text the last time that we were here, and this whole idea is being built on a warning given to believers to not fall away from the living God, to keep on believing. He tells us in this verse 11 here, to strive to enter that rest. In other words, strive to make it into heaven so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What kind of disobedience is that? Well, if you've been with us and you I've already gone through verse 11 a little bit in previous weeks, but this whole text is built around Psalm 95. That's a passage in the Old Testament that tells us about the Israelites who, because they didn't believe in God, didn't trust His Word, they refused to enter into the promised land, the rest that He was offering to Him in that moment. And so because they refused to believe Him, He said, fine. And out to the wilderness you shall go. And they died in the wilderness, that generation never entering into the promised land of God. And it's that picture, that image that's being drawn on over and over and over by this author in Hebrews as a warning. Don't be like those people. Remember them? Remember those Israelites who refused to believe what God said? Don't be like them. And over and over and again, he tells us to not fall like them. Don't be like the Israelites. Now, quick something, because this is just too important to not make sure we have clear. Does strive, does strive mean to do works in order to enter heaven? I've been showing you this in the text for the past month that we've been here, but just because it's so important that we get this right, there's no question or deviation here. Let's answer this question one more time. Chapter 3, verse 19 says that they were unable to enter, the Israelites, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The thing that was lacking in the Israelites was belief. Any works that were devoid in the Israelites were a result of a deficient faith. Chapter 4 verse 3 said, for we who have believed enter that rest. This whole section is an encouragement to believe. And the other side of that coin, it warns us to not disbelieve. So chapter 3, verse 12 said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. This passage is not about our works, but our faith. The kind of faith that perseveres to the end. He then says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This little four at the beginning here reminds us that all of what we have read is built on something, the Word of God. The fact that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we have to ask the question, what is this Word of God? What's the foundation for all of this? If you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you might remember that John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it'll go on in verse 14 of that same first chapter to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word of God in John chapter 1 is without a doubt Jesus. So in light of that, if that's in mind, you know what John 1 says about Jesus being the Word of God. We would say the incarnate Word. That means God's Word made flesh. He became flesh in the person of Jesus. If you have that in mind, you might understand then why it is that many early Christians saw this phrase right here in Hebrews 4. The Word of God referring to Jesus. There are a few notable exceptions to this in early Christian history, but it was a pretty dominant view. And that tradition carried down until the 1500s. Since that time, since the time of the Reformation, however, many more have seen it as referring to the written, delivered message of God, namely the Bible. So which is it? Is the Word of God here referring to Jesus? For Jesus is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Or is it saying the the words of God, the message of the gospel, the Bible is living and active? Which which is it? Now, this debate can get incredibly technical. And I must admit that as I studied through the arguments for both sides this past week, I felt like a poor swimmer in the deep end of a pool. So let me just very briefly summarize where I land with this, and if you have deeper questions and you want to go a little further with it, I'd be happy to exhaust this conversation over weeks. I think that this verse is talking about the Bible, the message of God. That this is what is being referred to as the Word of God here. We know both Jesus is referred to as the Word of God and God's message to us is referred to as the Word of God all over the New Testament. That we know. I think that here it's referring to the Bible. And I favor this view for four reasons. I'll give you these very quickly in hopes that they would be helpful for you. First, this very specific Greek phrase, logos to theos, word of God, is only found two places in the book of Hebrews. If you were to do a quick search, you'll find that the English phrase, word of God, shows up four times. But actually, this exact Greek phrase is only used twice. Here, and again in chapter 13, verse 7. I'll show you that verse real quick so you can see the other place. This same author uses it. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. It seems to me most likely that this means the gospel, the message of the truth. So the author, when using the phrase word of God, this same Greek phrase, defines that as a message from God delivered to people. The second reason, I think this is not talking just about Jesus, but it's talking about the Bible here, is that the nearest occurrence of the word logos in the next verse, that literally, the end of verse 13, if you were to look down there, is rendered account. You won't see the, the term word there. And if you have an English Standard Version like I'm reading out of right now, you won't see that. Verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give logos to whom we must give an account. So again, the author seems to have in mind a use of that term that means speech, testimony, a report of some kind. The third reason I think it's referring to the Bible, and to me the most compelling, 
is not only the context of this whole passage, but also how the author has already used the word logos in his central argument. I'll just show you where he used it in this flow of text back in chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, those Israelites, but the message, the logos, that's the same word, the logos, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So it seems to me most likely that this logos is the message of God. They heard the promises of God just like we have, and they did not believe as we should. Fourth reason is that the idea that God's word, that is, his message delivered through human servants, prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, Jesus himself, is compared to a sharp sword that can be found throughout the entirety of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 49.2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Ephesians 6.17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You might note also in the book of Revelation, three different times Jesus is described as having a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth with which he will strike down the nations. So even if a person were to take this phrase here as referring to Jesus, rather than the message of God, the big idea would remain essentially the same. Because both are true. Jesus is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Word of God, the message, the Bible, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I want you to pause and think about that for a quick moment. We ought never try to detach God from his word. We ought never try to take God here and his word over here as two separate and distinct things. What I mean by that is picture picture it with other people. The reason that we hesitate to take a person entirely at his or at her word is because we've been lied to before. And we lie. People, inherently, cannot always be trusted. Second, even if we were to give the greatest benefit of the doubt to people, that's an honest person, we still must consider that sometimes people change their minds. Well, I I, I used to think that and plan that and have that, but now I think this. And sometimes people are just incorrect. I I, I was just wrong. And once more information became available to me, I learned that I was wrong, and I've changed my mind over here. God does not lie, nor does he change his mind. And he is never wrong. God's word is true. We should never look and say, well, I know God's word says one thing, but he probably thinks another thing. I've talked with people who have this exact view in mind. I know it says this. I know it says this, but I think God feels something different. We cannot do that with God. So that four, showing that, that, that all that's being said is built on this word of God. How does that statement about God's word relate to the previous warning? Okay, If you were to read through this whole flow and see this warning, look at what happened back in Psalm 95, uh, David talking about what happened to the Israelites back then, and there's so much going on there, and he's telling us all about believe, don't fall away, persist, and 
trusting God and his promises. And then he pauses and he goes, oh, by the way, the Bible's really good. It's really true. And then comes back. Why, why would that be there? The author draws on the Old Testament to show that it is God himself who delivers the warning to us. I want you to note one, one something here. One of the reasons that the author of Hebrews is unknown, if you, if you missed our earliest time through here, uh, historically the, the dominant view has been this has been by the Apostle Paul. In more modern times, we think that it's possible it could be somebody else, one of the other apostles perhaps, or someone writing under the authority of another apostle. But we don't know. There's no named author for Hebrews. So we're uncertain. One of the reasons that the author of Hebrews is unknown is because he does not appeal to his own authority. Instead, he grounds everything in the Word of God that was available to his audience, namely the Old Testament. So how could a book like this make it into the canon? Because everything in it is drawing from the truth of Scripture, not from some guy's mind. This is why he takes great pains to make the points like he does in chapter 1. He goes over and over and over and over again, repeats Scriptures from the Old Testament to show, look, the Messiah has always been prophesied to be greater than the angels. Let me show you the Bible. He doesn't go, trust me, trust me, the Messiah is greater than the angels. He goes, look, it's all in here. He does the same thing in this chapter with the warning. Don't be like the Israelites. Look, they actually did this. They actually fell away. They actually didn't enter the promised land. Be warned by that. He uses the Bible over and over and over. Here, the author is saying, God said this. So much could be said about the words here living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. So many, so many micro-doctrines we could, we could utilize this verse to help us understand, and we ought to. We could spend decades investigating every part of this verse, but there is no escaping the main point of this language. The Word of God is powerful, and it's effective, Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Put your trust in the word of God and watch as it burns down false thinking in your mind. Watch how it smashes to bits lies that you and I have believed all our life. I told you before how God used Ephesians chapter 1 to entirely destroy my previous way of thinking about how big God is, about how gracious he really is, about how loving and merciful he actually is, how sovereign he really is. If you've ever heard me share that, even just in this quick summary, you notice that it was not God whispering into my ear a new thought that hadn't been there before. It was his word that did the work. It had been there all along. And from that day forward, I knew that my life would be devoted to this word. He actually means what he says. If, if, you're, not, if you're not a believer here today, you're hearing this message, and you have not made a profession of faith in Jesus, you're just, just curious about what do those Christians think. Take note. I say this often. Take note of how much we actually trust the Bible. We really believe the Bible more than ourselves, more than, more than the consensus more than anything, we believe God's words more than anybody else's words. And it's so interesting how sometimes in culture, when that's pushed to the test, and the world gets surprised that we actually meant it. 
Oh, oh, you actually meant you believed the Bible was real? Oh, you actually meant you would rather die than deny Jesus? Like, actually die? We really mean it. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see that? God's word will do exactly what he sent it to do. You might ask, that would be a good question. But it doesn't seem like it worked with those Israelites. How can he say this if they all heard his word? It just said that. They heard his word. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So how can God say, my word will succeed in what I sent it to do? And yet, people who heard did not get into the promised land. I want you to read it one more time with me. Read this, Isaiah 55, what it says here again. Notice that it does not say that the word going out from the mouth of God will accomplish what you and I suppose it will, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see that? It will do precisely what God sovereignly intended for it to do. It's just like a knife or perhaps a sharp two-edged sword. That term in Hebrews 4 might be more likely a knife than a sword. It's the same kind of, same word being used there. It can be used to kill or to perform surgery. It can be used to take life or to help restore health. There's more than one purpose in the using of a knife. You know, Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus himself says in John 12, 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So follow what I'm saying here. God's word will either be the operative agent in a person's turning in faith to Jesus, or it will be the basis of further judgment for the one who rejects it. It will not return back to him void. To say that the word did not work, it did not do what he intended for it to do, it did not accomplish his purpose, that would be like saying that the speed limit sign did not work because a person breaks it, breaks the speed limit. But the judge who delivers out the sentence, the police officer who pulls the person over, does so on the basis of the written speed limit. That's why Charles Spurgeon says, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. 
And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. On the last day, no one will stand before God and call him unjust. His word will have done exactly what he intended for it to do. In fact, on that day, it is us who will give an account to God and not the other way around. That's what the next verse says, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's no creature hidden from his sight. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Revelation 2, 23 And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This God who warned you to not fall away, he sees everything. God has unhindered access to every thought, every feeling, in our hearts and in our minds. He knows when we act, if it is out of faith or disbelief. All this to be said, Not striving to enter the rest of God is disbelieving our all-seeing, all-knowing God, the one to whom we must give account. You know, regardless of what you believe, you will stand before Him. All of us will. And none of us will be worthy of entering His eternal rest. On the last day, God does not say, bring all the people who believed in me, we'll we'll figure out how to judge them. All will stand before him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord, Jesus, you are Lord. And on that day, what will we have to offer before God in giving an account? He saw everything. He knows everything. That means not only the sin you did, but the impulse in your heart and in your mind that led to, that resulted in the sin. God knows and God will judge. You and me standing before an all-holy, perfect, righteous God will give an account. And all of us deserve judgment. You see, this is, this is the gospel I'm starting to preach. You need to understand, we will stand before God. And when an accounting is to be made, what will you say? This last week, all of us have failed. Nobody in this room, nobody gave God the glory, the praise, the worship He deserves this week. None of us gave Him the attention or the affection that He so rightly Is worthy of. Jesus once was asked what the greatest commandment is. He said simply the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. How are you doing on that? If you had a great week spiritually and you feel like, man, this was, a, this was a really good week, you know there are still things that take our focus, our mind off of God. There are still things that make it that we do not offer Him the praise that He is due. And that's only on our best days. Because you and I know that we have sinned. 
We've done wrong before God. We are deserving of his just judgment. We will stand before him and we must give an account. Everything will be seen. Nothing will be hidden. You know, people sometimes ask, how, how is it that such terrible things seem to happen out in the world? And God seems to do nothing. I've been reading through histories of the world with my kids and I've been reading through some, some books. I read through Revolutionary War and uh, read through a whole book on World War I and on the slave trade and the American South just prior to the Civil War. And reading these accounts to even my kids, it was heartbreaking to think about how much terrible things have happened. How much wickedness has been performed by mankind, even sometimes those who profess faith in Jesus. And there's no way to read an account of some of these giant wars and the kinds of atrocities that took place on a scale that's hard to fathom. Millions dead in a battle? What? We don't even have a way to process through that. How do you sleep thinking through those things? How, how, do you, how, how do you process through the kinds of awful that happens on a global scale? So much wickedness being done. But God, is he doing anything? Only before an all-seeing, all-knowing God who will bring everything before him is there any hope of absolute vindication. Do you understand that? Think outside of yourself for a moment. That means that any wrong done to you by someone else that you felt but no one else understood, they didn't know how much it really hurt on the inside, God knows that and he will bring that to light on the last day. It will be rightly judged somehow. You and I, all of our secret sins will be laid bare before the Lord. What are you going to say? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, unworthy, loving our sin more than him, with a growing pile of wrongs that we have committed against him foremost and others second, God sent his son to die for our sins. This is what This is what makes our praise of Jesus so emotional. When we lift up our voices to Jesus, it's because he is the son of God come who lived perfectly. Jesus did not sin once. There's no error in him. When the light shines on the life of Jesus, what do we see? Perfection. Flawless purity in the eyes of God. And yet Jesus the only perfect, pure, absolutely holy person who's ever lived, died a heinous, awful, wicked death. Why? Because you and I deserved punishment for our sins. And God sent his son to the cross to bear his wrath, the wrath of God poured out on his son that was due for all of us. Jesus bore that wrath in death. And if we believe in him, we believe in Jesus, we can have eternal life. That means that all, all the wrath due to us is satisfied in Jesus. So that when we stand before God to give an account, and God looks at our heart to judge, 
how good we are, he sees the perfection of Jesus that has been traded for our wickedness. We get Jesus' purity and holiness. And the wickedness that we have performed is placed on Jesus at the cross. It's been dealt with. It's been punished. It's final. It's complete. This is the gospel. Believe in Jesus and your sins will have been dealt with. If you don't know Jesus like that, if you've not heard that gospel, if you've not embraced that, if you've not cried out to God in repentance, God, my sin has made me wicked before you. I'm deserving of your punishment. I have nothing to say before you on that day. You need Jesus. You need to believe on him. Whether you're a believer or not, you need God's word. To convict the heart of your own sin, to tell you of the truth, all the things that I was just saying, you can find them here. This is where we find it, in the word of God that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You need the word of God. Believers, especially you, you need God's word. Have you ever gotten a new tool, maybe a lawnmower or a blender, and you read through the manual? Only 10% of you read through the manual. But then you set it down or toss it out because you, you, just, you only needed it in the introduction to the new thing. That's not the way we're to think of God's Word. It is an all-the-time, everyday, designed to be used by God in our lives for our benefit as believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, Paul's talking to believers, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Believers, you need the Word of God. You need the Word of God every day. You know, one thing I've never, ever heard when I sit down with brothers in Christ to counsel and to hear and sometimes just to be a Christian brother, sometimes to try to pastor or shepherd through difficult things. One thing I have never heard is, well, I haven't read the Bible in months, but my faith is great. Never heard it. You and I need to hear from God every day. Look, this author is quoting Old Testament and saying, that's for you today. That's for your benefit. That's for your help. Do you know what you need most the morning before you go in for a job interview? You need to hear from God. You need to hear from God more than anything. Do you know what you need most, most, before you help your family through a tough time? You need to hear from God. Do you know what you need most when your mind is filled with big questions about life and eternity and truth? You need to hear from God. 
You know what you need most? The morning after you got into a big fight with your spouse and your mind is swirling with all kinds of emotional thoughts. You need to hear from God. Do you know what you need most? When you've been having a great week and the sun is dawning on a new day and you're in high spirits, you need to hear from God. Do you know what you need most after you have fallen into that same nagging sin again? And you feel the shame and the guilt of moral failure all over you. You need to hear from God. You sensing a theme? You are not going to make it without the Word of God. What is it that Christians do when we think of missions, global missions in the world? We want to get the Word of God into the hands of people. What is it that missionaries through the ages have been put to death for after having been captured trying to smuggle into countries? that are against the gospel? It's not random sermons from a beloved pastor. It's Bible. What is it that Christians in remote parts of the world share when they only have one of? Taking turns around the clock in shifts to read the Word of God. Did you know that statistically in America, this is including all Americans, statistically there are four Bibles in every American home. You know this? You know, you've got 48 in your home. That's how it works. We are so blessed to have the Word of God. Bradley prayed for provision because that's our prayer theme focus for this month of February. And we can't not every day just go, thank you, thank you. Oh, goodness. Everywhere you go, you can have it with you. You know, you know what I mean. You have it on your phones or iPads. You can listen to it online. You can... There's no limit to your access to the Word of God. Oh, Christian, take advantage of that. Let us not be the generation who has the greatest access and yet the least desire to invest our energies into God's Word. And let us as a church made up of families trust God's Word more than anything else. Let's pray. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet And a light unto my path. God, it is your word that you have preserved through the ages. The number of dynasties and empires and powerful peoples around the world that have tried to snuff 
these pages out of existence are hard to count. But you have preserved it for your people. Lord, we know that it is by hearing the word of Christ that we even have faith. Lord, let us be a people of the word. Let us not be like the Israelites who heard your word and disbelieved. Let us be a people of the book. Teach us every day. Help us to teach our children. Help us to bring all of our hard questions about life and today and tomorrow to your word. Help us to trust your answers more than anyone, more than anyone, more than a beloved spouse, a trusted Christian friend, a pastor we trust, more than anyone. Let us trust your word. Father, we have compromised in our life on your word. We may not know where. We may need your help to see it. So, Lord, let us every day of our life just invest time to patiently just read through your promises given to us. Help us to trust that they really are for our benefit. Help us to heed the warnings you give. Help us to not explain away hard passages. Help us to embrace even the things, maybe especially the things that rub against our life. Lord, let us be a people who care more about what you think and what you say than anyone else in the world, even that voice in our own head. Father, help us to take seriously the things that we do know. Lord, when we find things that are so clear, so evident, so obvious to us, let us not hesitate obeying. Let us be a people who learns more about you every day, trusts and loves you more every day that grow in a desire to know your word every day. Lord, I know right now there are dozens of people in this room, in this room right now, who do not read your word very regularly, who are struggling and hurting in their faith, and they know it, and they know that they need you, and they know that they should be investing energy in your word and what you have to say. Lord, please obliterate whatever obstacle stands in their way. Show up in a mighty way. Lord, part their difficulties, their obstacles, like you parted the Red Sea. Lord, give them nuggets of truth that they can use regularly. Help them to remember. Help me, Lord, to remember your word, to memorize what your scripture teaches us. Help us to never, ever, ever try to dissect between who you are and what you've said as though they are in opposition Lord, let us see your word as so perfectly, purely you speaking to us that we just love and trust it. Lord, help us to follow all of your word. That includes not being prideful and arrogant about what we think we see. Teach us to be humble when we read your word. And when things cause us to line up against others in this world, let it be out of the impulse of love for you and a commitment to your word more than a rigidity that is birthed out of arrogance. 
God, these, these things we are asking are so, so big that apart from your help, we've got nothing. So Lord, do what you have promised to do. Preserve us through your word. Show us today how living and active it is. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.